Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the snow today, and I thank you that it's a beautiful thing that you've given us. We thank you so much for that. We pray this in your awesome and magnificent name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we always like to take, we try to take good care of our chapel speakers, and um, the first thing that Dr. David, uh, Dr. David Busick received this morning was a parking ticket from Eastern Nazarene College, so um, welcome. Uh, we also uh, made a mistake. <laughs> we sent the posters back a few times to fix times of schedule on the posters you see around campus, and the largest font on the on the posters are his name, and his name is Dr. David Busick, but the posters say Dr. Davis Busick. Uh, so welcome to ENC. Uh, we, are, we are making you feel welcomed and loved, and I, of course, blame the student chaplains for any error along the way uh, that may have happened. It has nothing to do with me, and I'm just putting it out there. Um, <clears throat> Dr. David Busick is the ninth president of Nazarene Theological Seminary. Uh, He is a native of central Oklahoma and was raised in Bethany, Oklahoma. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree from Southern Nazarene University, Master's of Divinity degree from Nazarene Theological Seminary. In 2010, Southern Nazarene conferred the Doctor of Divinity degree to him, and he is currently pursuing doctoral studies in theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. He was ordained in the Church of the Nazarene in 1991, and he served pastorates in Oklahoma and Kansas. Uh, he's also served at Vineyard Community Church of the Nazarene in Livermore, California. And uh, during, his tenure, uh, during his tenure in these churches, he established different partnership programs, especially when he was at Bethany Church of the Nazarene in Oklahoma, and they established a partnership in Swaziland in 2007 to help reduce the HIV age rate and assist vulnerable children in Swaziland, Africa. He's published numerous articles, co-authored two books, A Pastor's Guide to Effective Preaching and Sharing My Faith, and was co-editor of Preacher's Magazine, a preaching resource in the Wesleyan tradition from 2000 to 2007. His preaching is widely respected throughout the church, making him a highly sought-after speaker and a leader in our denomination. His wife, Christy, is with us this week. Can you please welcome her? They have three grown children and one granddaughter who's five or six months, Kennedy. And uh, he said I could share his age. It's on his bio that was on the website. Dr. Busick is a grandfather at only the age of 48. And they were married at age 18. And uh, so uh, Christy had just turned 18. And he was sharing with my wife and I last night. And I hope I can share this. They were in their first apartment. They had nothing, just like a, a futon and a mattress. That was it. That's all they had. And so when they received their first paycheck, this is a true story. You need to ask them about it. it was, it's deeply moving and spiritual. Their first purchase when they got their paychecks was a ColecoVision game system. Uh, so they just gathered together as a young couple in marriage and played uh, video games uh, for that first month of marriage. So to you young couples, um, don't follow that example. <laughs> Dr. David Busick would love to have a chance to speak to you this week. He'll be here all week. And will you please give a warm welcome to Dr. David Busick. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good to see you. I see Corey's continuing the, uh, the idea of throwing everybody he knows under the bus. So <laughs> student chaplains and then me and... Now, it is a real delight and privilege for me to get to be with you this week, and we love ENC, uh, Dr. McGee, and uh, Corey, and Edie, and 
Pastor Kevin and, and all of the faculty. It, it's a privilege and honor for us to get to share this these few days with you. And uh, just one other thing about us being grandparents, uh, I, I didn't know that times had changed, but apparently it's important now that you pick particular names for what you're going to be called by your grandchildren. Grandpa and Grandma aren't enough anymore, and so this is what my wife told me anyway. So she said, let's, let's go about the task of finding out what we're going to be called. And she went through a litany of names, and finally she came up with this idea of her being called Mimi, which sounded like a pretty good deal until I realized that would have made me pee-pee. And so <laughs> um, we, we went back to the drawing board, and now she is Gigi and I am Poppy in good Italian tradition. So... Um, I, I'm here for the week to be with you, but I would love to talk to any of you if you're thinking what you're going to do for graduate school, and if you would like to talk about what it would be like for you to do your graduate studies in theology and Bible or compassionate ministries, whatever the case may be, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, I'm going to be tomorrow afternoon at 5 p.m. in Canterbury Lecture Hall, and there's going to be free pizza and I'm, I'm going to be there to talk to any of you who'd like to talk about what a seminary is and how you can just get a little more information. And if you just want to come talk about call in general, we, we can talk about what it means to be called in the ministry. So 5 o'clock tomorrow at Canterbury Lecture Hall. And then tonight, just a little advertisement for tonight's chapel. I, the, the name of the sermon tonight is, will the, will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? If, if you've ever had any concerns about what you're hearing about who Jesus is and what Jesus was about and who he is today, I, I hope tonight you'll come and we can talk about uh, who I think the real Jesus is. So that's tonight at chapel. I want to talk to you this morning, though, um, about what I think is the most revolutionary, stunning life-altering concept the world has ever known. It, it's such a life-transforming idea that there have been entire revolutions that have gone on in the history of the world because of this idea. It, it's an idea that, that uh, one, one songwriter wrote something about it and said the only way to describe it is that it's, that it's amazing. And this truly is the concept that separates Christianity from all other world religions. And you can, we can find that in Ephesians chapter 2. And so I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, although if you want to do this later, I think it would really help you to see it. But I just want to read two verses about the most revolutionary idea the world has ever heard. And here it is. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What's the idea? The idea is grace. 
there, there was a group of theologians that were gathered together to talk about what, what is it that separates Christianity from all other world religions? What is it that makes Christianity unique? And they were debating back and forth, and for a while they, they said, well, well, maybe it's this idea of the incarnation. You know, the idea that, that God would put on human flesh and come to be uh, walk among human beings. And they debated that for a while, and they finally decided, you know, they're while that's obviously an amazing thing, there are other traditions that talk about the gods coming to earth, and so maybe that's not the most unique part of it. And then they went on to talk about, well, maybe it's the resurrection, and obviously we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and, and the idea that Jesus would be raised from the dead for our salvation is, is a life-transforming idea. But, but they said, you know, there's some other traditions where there are... There are I, myths about people being raised from the dead. And so maybe that's not the idea either. About that time, C.S. Lewis walked into the room. C.S. Lewis is the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and all of that, and one of the most brilliant theologians of the 20th century. And, and he said, what's all this discussion about? And they said, well, we're trying to decide what makes Christianity unique from all other world religions. And he said, well, that's easy. They said, it is? They'll tell us. He said, it's grace. Grace is genuinely what separates all other religions from the idea of Christianity because no other world faith will say to us that God comes to us free of charge with, without, without any, any sense of responsibility on what we will do or the way we will react, but God comes to us to offer free salvation. That's something that no other world religion will talk about. It, and this idea of grace, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it talked about on many occasions. And I just want to give you a little brief idea of what grace is about. The first thing I'd say to you is that grace literally means gift. It means free gift. If somebody were to come and give you a gift and say, you know, I'm giving you this, but I have some expectation of return, then, then it really wouldn't be a gift. It would be something else. But grace literally means free gift. Grace, grace means that God treats us with favor. It, I actually could say it this way. Grace means God treats you with favor even though you deserve the opposite. That, what that means is that it doesn't, it doesn't matter initially what you do or who you are, but there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less than he does right now. He already loves you. There's... You can't be a better person to make God love you more than he does right now. You can't work harder. You can't pray harder. You can't read your Bible more to say that, you know, I'm going to treat that person a little differently now. God loves you more as much as he's ever going to love you in this moment. Not because of you deserve it, but because that's who God is. That's God's nature. Grace also means there's nothing you can do to make God love you less than he loves you right now. You can't be a worse person. You, you can't go out and do a bunch of bad things and have God say, you know... I, I don't think I love them quite today like I loved them yesterday. Grace literally means there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less than he does right now. The other thing you no, need to know is that grace is not a thing. It's not some kind of substance that you get from God. It's not like, it's not like the Christian motor oil in your life to make your walk go a little smoother. Grace is very personal because grace not only comes to exactly where you are in your life in a personal way, but it comes to you personally from God because grace is literally 
all of God's activity toward you through his son, Jesus. And so grace is not a thing. Grace is very, very personal. It's the favor given to someone who deserves the opposite. It is free gift. And that is a revolutionary idea. The question, though, is, is that how does this grace of God get extended into our lives? How, how does God bring it to pass? And how does it work in, in our day-to-day walk with Christ? That's what I want to show you in the next couple of minutes. The first thing I want you to know is that God's grace is a seeking grace. And what that means is that, that you do not come to God, but God, rather, comes to you. I've heard some people say from time to time, I, I came to Christ back in such and such a time. And I understand what they're trying to say when they, when they talk about that. But that's really not what happens. Nobody ever comes to Jesus. Jesus, rather, comes to you. And the reason that's true is that if I had read a little bit earlier in this passage from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to tell us that all of us were already dead in our transgressions and our sin. Dead people cannot respond. Dead people, can, they're, not, they're not only not conscious, they're dead. So there's nothing that they can do to respond to God, which means that even your ability to, to say yes to God or no to God is based on the fact that God has already come to you by his grace and he has touched you. He has awakened you, you could say, from your death sleep. Now, I, I just met Jacob a little earlier this morning and he's agreed to help me a little bit. So I'm going to use him as kind of a prop, a human prop for the rest of this talk. What it means is that God comes to where you are and he touches you and he, and he raises you to consciousness. He, he allows you to begin to even, even to be aware of his working in your life. And Jesus talked about this. He said that, that God is, is like a shepherd who has 100 sheep. 99 of them are safe in the fold, but there's one who has become lost. And so rather than do the rational thing, which would be to protect the 99 that he has and count his losses and forget about the one, Jesus said, this shepherd goes looking for the one lost sheep. And he searches until he finds that sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he throws a celebration and all of the, all of the village rejoices. He said, this is the way God approaches us. God comes to where we are. We do not climb a ladder to God. If... Uh, one of faith tradition says, if you take one step toward God, God will take two steps toward you. But see, that's not grace. It, you might call that mercy, but who's taking the first step? You are. Christianity is the only religion that says that God comes to where you are out of love and finds you to rescue you. He awakens you to his presence. That's called the seeking grace of God. Are you with me so far? But then his grace begins to work in a different way, and that is the saving grace of God. And this is when God captures our heart. This is when we say yes to the offer of salvation from God. And we call this a lot of different things, this saving grace of God. Sometimes we call it salvation, or sometimes we call it redemption. Uh, one biblical writer says that it is such a transforming moment that, we, that you could actually call it being born again. 
being made new, that all things pass away and all things become new. And this is not just some kind of a belief we have, and that's what I want to kind of correct in our minds. It's not just a believing in Jesus, but literally there is a transformation of who we are by his grace. He comes into us and transforms us, and we become literally a child of God. We are adopted into his family. We are set free from fear. We are forgiven of our sins. We're given new purpose in life. And that's why we call it saving grace. He captures our heart and we become his child. That's an amazing thing. But believe it or not, God's grace doesn't stop there. Because then you kind of start walking a journey together and, and you take a path. It's a relationship with God. And his grace is, is giving us strength and power all the way through. But I, I promise you, whether it happens immediately or somewhere down the road, any person who is walking with God will come to a moment in their life where they realize God and I are in the car together, but I'm the one who's driving. I'm still in control of a few aspects of my life and, and I've given God everything in my life except that part of my life, that part that I want to still manage and that part that I still want to control. And so what happens is, is we're faced with a decision and God's grace brings us to that moment. Are we going to actually not only let him be our savior, but are we going to let him be our Lord? Are we going to allow him to be our master and be in control and call the shots of our lives. And that's what we call the sanctifying grace of God. And that's where we bow our knee and we say, I want you to be in full control of my life. I want to be so completely filled with your spirit that you've not only captured my heart, but that you cleanse my heart, that you make me completely yours, wholly yours. I become a a Christ-like person who loves God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and who loves my neighbor as myself. And this moment of bowing our knee to Christ and saying, you take over everything. I surrender everything about my life, my past, my present, my future. I surrender it all. That moment is called the act of consecration. We consecrate our lives. We become a living sacrifice. But here's the thing. Your act of consecration is not what makes you like Jesus. Your act of consecration and bowing your knee, that in and of itself is not what sanctifies you and sets you apart because sanctification is still something God does for you. God is the one who empowers you by his grace to be who he's called you to be. God is the one who makes you holy. It's not you doing more holy things. It's God's grace being infused into you and cleansing your heart until even your very motives and your decisions and your priorities are now completely aligned with his will. And this is called the sanctifying grace of God. But believe it or not, the grace of God continues in our life. And that is the next grace is not seeking grace. It's not saving grace. It's, it's not sanctifying grace, but it's called sustaining grace. And sustaining grace looks like this. It's the grace that's got your back. It's the grace that protects you. It's the grace, the Bible says, can keep you from falling. 
This is the grace that says no matter what temptation will come into your life, that by the power of God at work within you, that you can say yes to God and no to temptation. Whereas before you couldn't do that. And here's another place where it gets kind of tricky because I've heard some preachers say that once you're sanctified and wholly given to God that you can never sin again. But that's simply not true. And let me tell you why. God will never take away your free will. He will never take away the relationship aspect of your walk with him. You will always have the power to say no to God if you choose. But here's the difference. Watch this. The difference is, whereas before you couldn't say yes to God, now you have the power to say no. This is the enabling power of God, the grace of God in your life to say yes to him and no to sin. Paul said it this way. Sin was my my taskmaster. Sin was in complete control. Sin overpowered me and I kept doing stuff that I didn't want to do. And the things that I did want to do, I couldn't do. But now that the spirit is at work within my life, now I have the power to say yes to him. And that's called the enabling or the sustaining grace of God that can keep you holy to the moment that you see Jesus face to face. All right. And Jacob, I'm going to have you just sit by Christy for a second, would you? There's one more aspect of grace that that for me is the most mysterious of all. It's not that hard to describe. It's just hard to get your, your mind and your heart around it. And the first time you read about it specifically is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the Apostle Paul was talking about something in his life that was so hard and, and so, uh, so much suffering that he, that he said, I went to God and I begged God to take it away from me. It was some burden in his life. It was, it was some dark place that was, that was so oppressive to him that he, just, he kept saying, God, please remove this from me. In fact, he called it a thorn in his flesh. And he said it was like a messenger from Satan reminding me of my weakness. Now, one of the things you need to understand is that Paul was not, he was not a wimp. Paul was a pretty tough guy. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, you find out that Paul went through all kinds of things. Like he went through beatings and whippings and he, and he got thrown in prison on a number of occasions. He was shipwrecked once. He spent a couple of days in the open sea. He, he was hungry a lot. He, he went through a lot of things for the faith and he did it with strength. And so we're not talking about a wimp. So apparently, whatever this thing was, this thorn in his flesh was a big enough deal to Paul that he said, God, I could be a far better, more effective Christian for you if you just remove this from me. But he said, I prayed it three times. And every time God said to me, Paul, I'm not taking that thorn away. You're going to keep that thorn. But here's what I want you to remember. My grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Another way to say that is, Paul, you are stronger in your weakest moment with me than you are strong in your strongest moment without me. Paul, I want you to know something. You're going to go through some times in your life where it's going to seem like it's so heavy and so burdensome and so crushing to you that you don't feel like you can take another step. But Paul, let me tell you what's going to happen then. 
My grace is going to be sufficient for you because in those moments... There you go. Everybody give Jacob a hand. Did a good job. Every time I give that illustration, I know someone's going to start laughing because it's kind of funny. But listen, I want that image to be burned into your mind because I can promise you Just because you're going to be in life, there's going to be some moments in your life where you don't have the strength to take another step. But God's love and grace for you is powerful enough that when you can't go on, He will carry you. It's the promise of His grace. There's there's an old story we used to tell called Footprints in the Sand. And it went something like this. There was a guy who was able to look back over his life and he always noticed, that there were two sets of footprints on the beach as they walked along. And, and he knew one was his and one was God's. And, they would, and it, through good times and bad times and happy times and sad times, he noticed there was always two sets of footprints. But he also noticed in reflection that, that in the hardest, most difficult moments that he experienced, it turned out that there was one set of footprints in the sand. And it bothered him. And he went to God and he said, why is it that in my darkest, most difficult valleys that you abandoned me? And God said, I didn't abandon you, son. It was during those times that I was carrying you. And listen, it's true. You can think about this in your head, but you may not be able to fully grasp it until you're the one who's been carried. And I've actually heard people over 20 years of pastoring say to me, People ask me how I get out of bed in the morning. People ask me how I even take another step. But they said, Pastor, it's just literally like God himself has picked me up and is carrying me through that dark time. And I always understood it in my head, but it wasn't until a few years ago that I understood the power of sufficient grace. I was pastoring Bethany First Church and we were going through a a major, severe lawsuit. And the trial was coming up soon, and it was a big deal. It was a a lawsuit that had the potential, literally, to bankrupt our church. And I knew I was going to have to be testifying, and I was meeting with lawyers all over the place and going through depositions, and and it it was a heavy burden to bear. I carried it for six years as I was pastoring that church. And we were about two weeks away from what looked to be a six-week trial. It was all over the news, all over the city. People were talking about it. And right about that time, I remember I got a phone call. I remember exactly where I was. I was standing on our front porch, and I answered the phone, and it was Christy on the other end, and she couldn't talk. And I finally said, Honey, what's wrong? And she said, I just got back from the doctor. And he told me, I have cancer. I want to tell you something. I've heard those words a thousand times as a pastor. But it means something totally different when it's your wife who has cancer. And she said, the doctors found a a tumor in my throat about the size of a 
of an orange and and they aren't saying if it's spread, but they think they want to do emergency surgery and take that out. And all of a sudden, we knew why she had been so sick over the last few months. And they said it could be contained, but it also could have spread into her lymph system. And it might be something that we can do nothing about, but we want to go in immediately and take out that tumor. I remember the night before her surgery, my kids had all gone home. And Christy was asleep in the hospital bed and all the lights were down and it was just me and Christy and God. And while she slept, I walked over to her bed and I knelt down by her bed and I just said this to God. God, I am so overwhelmed right now. I just, I don't know what I'm going to do if I lose my wife. I just said, I need you, God, right now. I need you to show yourself to me in a way you've never showed me. Are you here, God? And I can't fully describe exactly what happened in that moment, but it was like the Spirit of God swept into that room in such a powerful, palpable way that if I had dropped a, a dry leaf from the ceiling, it would have blown completely across the room. But it was like the presence of God came in and literally wrapped himself around me and lifted me up, and I had a peace and a strength like I have never had before. And I've been through dark times before, but I had never fully felt carried until that moment. And I knew I was experiencing the sufficient grace of God. I didn't know that moment when I was on my knees that the next, the next few days we were going to find out that that cancer had been contained and that Christy to this day is cancer-free by the grace of God. But I want to tell you something. I didn't know it on that night. But what I did know was that the grace of God was enough for me in that moment. And the grace of God is enough for you. The seeking grace of God that comes to where you are. The saving grace of God that redeems you. The, the sanctifying grace of God that empowers you. The sustaining grace of God that protects you. And the sufficient grace of God that carries you. It's all there for you. One last story before we close. Let's pretend for a minute that a that a 12-year-old girl walked through the back of this sanctuary. And she walked in, and you could tell by the way she looked, by her clothes, they were ill-fitting. They didn't look clean. You could tell she probably didn't have a great home life. Her hair is a little bit ragged. You can tell by the bruises on her arm that there's probably been a little bit of abuse going on. You also know a little bit about her family history. You know that her mom is now living with her fourth boyfriend after three different husbands. And there's even some rumor on the street that maybe there's some sexual abuse going on in that family. You know that she's failing all of her classes in the seventh grade, that she's not passing one. It's not because she's stupid. It's because she doesn't have any support and there's no strength in her life. And, and let me tell you what a behavioralist would say about that 12-year-old girl. A behavioralist would say she is wounded for life. She is stuck. She's going to walk with a limp for the rest of her days because of all of the damage that's been done to her. She is damaged goods. She'll never be what she could have been. That's what a behavioralist would say. You want to know what a Christian would say? 
by the power and love of God, God can take everything that's broken in her life, all the damage that's been done to her, the damage she will have done to herself, and God can heal her and restore her and renew her and reconcile her, and she can be everything God ever wanted her to be by his grace. In fact, John Wesley, one of our spiritual forefathers, said, show me the vilest wretch in all of London, and I will show you someone who has all the grace of the apostles themselves. I don't know you well. You don't know me well. I hope to get to know you better. But I want to tell you something. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from, what you've done, no matter how shameful it is, And it doesn't even fully matter everything that's been done to you. The grace of God breaks into all of that. And he restores and redeems and heals and makes whole and makes new. All things become new in Christ. This week I'm praying that you will experience the grace of God in a fresh and new way at whatever level you need. And I'd just love to pray for you right now and ask that God would meet you where you are, that his amazing grace, that how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. That's what I'm praying for you to happen this week. Father, I pray for my friends in this room. They've come from a variety of different places and circumstances. But in this very moment, I am convinced that your spirit, the spirit of the living Jesus, the real Jesus, is coming to where they are out of love. You are opening their eyes. You are calling them to yourself. You are making all things new. And I pray for every one of these students and faculty and staff that are here. But I also know there's one person here who's carrying the heaviest burden of all, who feels the most lost, the most broken. I pray you would minister to that one. Lift him up. Lift her up. Help her to see the possibilities of grace. We give this to you. We commit this week to you. By your grace. Let's stand together. Let's sing that first verse of Amazing Grace.